right, good morning. Thanks for being here on this freezing cold morning, and thank you also to those who are joining us on live stream right now. Uh, if you were here last week, you know that we are continuing with our theme from the fall, Jesus' parables. Uh, last fall, we looked at a bunch of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, for the next few weeks, we are looking at more of Jesus' parables, although not necessarily in the Gospel of Luke. We're expanding it and moving around to some of the other, the other Gospels as well. As I mentioned last week, 35% of Jesus' recorded words are parables. So whether we like parables or not, if we want to follow Jesus, we've got to wrestle with parables. Parables are short stories that are used to communicate a spiritual or moral point. Now, some of Jesus' parables are very hard to understand. They're almost like little puzzles uh, that we have to uh, reflect on to, to get the meaning out of them. And uh, as I said last week, the disciples wondered, why does Jesus speak in parables so much? And so once they asked him, and my paraphrase of his answer is something like, I speak in parables so that those whose hearts are open will seek the truth more, and those whose hearts are not will go, huh, and move on. And so throughout this series, we are doing our best not to say, huh, and move on, but to seek the truth that Jesus is expressing. So a lot of Jesus' Jesus's parables are hard to understand, but not all of them are hard to understand. Uh, for some of them, you really have to be in denial not to see what he is saying. And I think the parable that we're going to look at this morning falls in that category. This is one where the meaning is right on the surface. So if you have your Bible, open up to Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. Let me pray for us. Lord, we invite you right now to work in our hearts and minds through, through these words. Lord, we've come here today because we want to encounter you, uh, be, because we want to be more in line with your, your will. Um, Lord, we pray that you would, you would honor that desire and that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's hard for us today to appreciate how shocking the end of that parable would be to Jesus' original audience. 
It is a total reversal of expectations, completely upside down. In those days, if anybody was considered righteous, it was the Pharisees. They were highly respected religious leaders. They were people who practiced special acts of devotion. And this Pharisee seems like he's one of the better ones. Right? He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Giving a tenth of all I get, what that means is that 10% of everything that belonged to him, whenever he acquired anything, went to the temple. So, you know, for comparison, imagine if every time you came home from the grocery store, uh, you set aside 10% of your deli meat, 10% of your canned goods, you, you measured out 10% of that gallon of milk that you just bought, you put it all aside, and then you brought it to church with you on Sunday. That's the kind of thing that this Pharisee did. That's the kind of thing that most of the Pharisees did. In fact, some Pharisees even went so far as to tie the tenth of their spices. So imagine, you know, measuring out, weighing it so that you've got 10% of your cinnamon, 10% of your pepper and all that, and you're bringing it to the church. Pretty impressive. Impressive devotion, right? And then this guy also fasts twice a week, which is especially impressive if we know that they didn't just fast food, but they fasted water as well. And the norm in those days was just to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. That was when you were required to fast. Sometimes people would fast if there was a time of, of crisis, you know, a national crisis in Israel, or uh, if, if somebody had a crisis in their personal life, they might fast to show repentance and seriousness before God and to implore God to help. But this guy, he fasts twice a week. One of the commentaries I was looking at claimed to know even which days of the week that would be. I think it was Monday and Thursday. Don't know why it was those days. But clearly, I mean, that's... That's impressive devotion. I certainly wouldn't want to do that. So this Pharisee is the kind of guy who would be considered a model of faithfulness in that time. A holy man. The kind of person that God is pleased with. But the tax collector, on the other hand, would have been considered the opposite. Tax collectors were thought of as sellouts. Uh, sellouts to their nation and to their faith. Because what they did was they collected taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, collected taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of the godless, oppressive Roman Empire. You see, the Jews, they believed that the nation of Israel was supposed to be independent. And not only was the nation of Israel supposed to be independent, but it was supposed to be the greatest nation in the world. But, during the time of Jesus' ministry, they were neither of those things. They were under the authority of the Roman Empire. And everybody in the Roman Empire was supposed to pay taxes to Rome. So that was humiliating for Israel. That's, that The fact that they had to do that seemed at odds with what God had promised them. And so the Jews among them who profited off of this arrangement were seen as lowlifes, villains. You know, 
when you think of the tax collector, you, th you shouldn't think of someone who had the reputation of like a modern day IRS agent. You should think of someone more like a drug dealer. <laughs> that is how they would think of a tax collector. And yet, who goes home justified before God in this parable? It's the tax collector. That word justified, when you hear that, you want to hear something like, the tax collector was considered righteous before God, or the tax collector was considered as he ought to be. The tax collector was considered as he ought to be, but the Pharisee was not. Now, why is that? Well, it's certainly not because there's anything wrong with fasting or tithing or acts of religious devotion. If those things are done with the, the right spirit, those are good things. And it's certainly not because there's something good about being a tax collector. That's not the issue here. Jesus is clear what the difference between these two men is. One is humble, and the other one is not. The other one is proud. That's why he finishes with these words. He makes it very obvious what the point of the parable is, right? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this parable is all about how important, how central, how essential humility is to our relationship with God. Without humility, we cannot please God. It's that important. But that should lead us to ask, well, what is humility really? I think we often misunderstand what real humility is like. You know, some people think that humility looks like self-loathing. You know, always thinking the worst about yourself. But I don't think that's right. I mean, Jesus told us that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves, which assumes that we're going to love ourselves, right? If you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but you don't love yourself at all, then that command actually means to not be nice to your neighbors. <laughs> right? So Jesus assumes, okay, we're, we're not going to hate ourselves, right? We should have a healthy self-regard. We, sh we should care about ourselves. So humility can't just mean some kind of self-loathing. That doesn't make sense. You know, some people think that what humility looks like is arguing with anybody whenever they try to give you a compliment. Oh, no, 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 no. Right? You, you, no, I, I, was, I was terrible. I was awful. You could probably do it better than me. Right? But I don't think that's what God has in mind. Most of the time, you know, there's nothing wrong with receiving a compliment. We shouldn't be immodest, but... It's okay to say, oh, thank you. Receive that. It's also not a sin to take pride in a job well done. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, but a big theme there is that we should take pride, satisfaction in doing our work and doing it well. Right? So humility doesn't look like just feeling like we're worthless all the time. Some people say that humility isn't so much thinking poorly of ourselves as it is just not thinking about ourselves very much. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that. 
And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Right? Prideful people tend to be very self-absorbed, very self-focused. Humble people are able to think about others. So that's true. But being humble can't mean not, never thinking about ourselves. Right? The, the tax collector here, he prays for himself, about himself, right? and he's held up as an example of humility. So it's not about completely forgetting about ourselves. But what is humility really? Well, I'm not going to attempt to provide a def definition right now. But I do think this parable can help us because it demonstrates for us two characteristics of real humility. Two characteristics of the kind of humility that pleases God and that is essential to our relationship with God, to a healthy relationship with God. So, number one, real humility doesn't look down on others. Real humility doesn't look down on others. Luke tells us very clearly that this parable was told to some who looked down on everyone else. That was Jesus' intended audience. And of course, the Pharisee embodies that attitude of looking down on everyone else. His prayer is basically, God, I thank you that I'm better than other people. I am so glad that I am not like them. Right? His attitude is, I am above, and all these other people are below. And what Jesus wants us to realize is that that attitude is so toxic. It is deadly to us spiritually. But you know, it is the most natural thing in the world. It is so natural that we can read this parable and easily come away from it making the same mistake as the Pharisee. Right? Because we might read it and go, oh, religious people, right? Oh, they're so annoying, right? So judgmental. I'm glad I'm not like them. And just like that, we're committing the same sin as the Pharisee. Looking down on him and people like him, feeling superior. Some people look down on others because ugh, they're sinners. And other people look down on others because pff, such prudes. Both of them lack humility. Both of them have the attitude that says, I am better. And that is what Jesus is taking aim at here. Now, I don't want us to get the wrong idea. Okay, I want to be careful. Jesus is not saying that we can't ever judge whether someone's action is sinful or not. Jesus certainly did that quite a bit. You know, the Pharisee mentions adultery and robbery. Scripture is clear that adultery and robbery are bad. Jesus confronted those kinds of things. So it's not saying that we shouldn't recognize sin as sin. That is not the Pharisee's problem. It's okay to recognize sin as sin. Something we should do. You know, if a pastor of a church is committing adultery and robbery, then he should be removed from his position. And if he doesn't think so, he's got a real lack of humility. Right? Pharisee's problem is not 
that he recognizes sin as sin. His problem is that he sees sin as an issue out there rather than in here. All he can see is the sin out there, but not within. He sees sinners as fundamentally different from himself, almost like they're a different species, like they're composed of something entirely different than he is. Thank God that I'm not like other people. Not like those dirty, unethical, impure people. When we have humility in our hearts, it leads us to recognize, even though I might be a productive, healthy member of society, I am not that different from, quote, sinners. I'm not that different from the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the addicts. Not that different from the the homeless, the adulterers, and thieves. Humility recognizes I am made up of the same basic stuff as all of those people. You know, and maybe if I had been born to a different family and raised under different circumstances, maybe if I had suffered more discrimination or abuse or molestation or poverty, maybe I would be making the same choices some of those people are. Humility doesn't say, I'm so much better than them. It says, I am probably more like them than I realize. Humility enables us to see the humanity in the, quote, sinners. And humility recognizes, if I don't remain vigilant, if I don't surrender to Christ daily, if I don't recognize that there is sin within me too, it could be my mugshot on the news in the future. It could be me in the courtroom. It could be me who's losing my, my livelihood or my reputation or my marriage. Scripture is clear that all of us have a problem with sin. Every one of us. In the book of Genesis, sin is described as a praying animal crouching, ready to pounce. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You have to master it. Now, with God's help, that beast of sin, that praying animal, it can be tamed and caged. But the moment we start to get prideful, the moment we start to think that sin is primarily a problem out there rather than in here, it's like the cage opens and that beast of sin starts to get to roam free. Pride is like a key that unlocks the cage to the beast of sin freeing him. But humility is like a padlock that helps to keep that beast tamed and caged. One of the reasons that humility has that power to cage the beast is because it enables us to love. I want to suggest a formula for you guys to remember. Humility leads to empathy and empathy leads to love. Obviously, this isn't specifically something Jesus said, but this is just in my own personal reflection. 
I think this is true. Humility leads to empathy, and empathy leads to love. You know, Jesus said that all of the law can be summarized with those two commands, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't really love your neighbor as yourself until you're able to put yourself in her shoes, right? And allow yourself to feel a little bit of what she feels and imagine things from her perspective. But here's the problem. When you're not humble, you're feeling superior. And when you're feeling superior, there's no room in your heart to feel what other people are feeling. Because you're too busy feeling superior. Right? But real humility, the kind that doesn't look down on others, makes it possible for, for us to empathize, to, to feel a little bit of what other people are feeling. Even people we disagree with, even people we don't like, even people who we, who we think are dangerous and who are dangerous. It enables us to, to feel a little bit of what they're feeling. And as our empathy increases, so also does our ability to love, right? Because when we feel what others feel, even just a little bit, we can't help but want them to feel blessed. And that's what love is, seeking the blessing of somebody else, right? So humility leads to empathy, and empathy leads to love. Without humility, we can't fulfill the greatest commandment. We'll be too busy feeling superior. So, humility doesn't look down on others. What else does this parable teach us about real humility? Number two, humility recognizes our need for mercy from God. Humility recognizes our need for mercy from God. The Pharisee recognizes that other people are sinners. The tax collector recognizes that he is a sinner. And Jesus says that God prefers the tax collector. That's the better attitude. If we want to have a healthy relationship with God, it starts by being willing to say, I need help. I need help. One way I like to put this is the first step to being okay is recognizing that we are not okay. Now, let me clarify something. Again, I am not saying that we're supposed to hate ourselves. You should never feel like you have to apologize for being human. But we should all feel like we need to apologize for being inhuman. And we should all recognize that within ourselves there is a great capacity for inhumanity, right? For selfishness, for unkindness and cruelty, for impatience and rudeness, and all of us have, at times, if we are honest, given in to that capacity for inhumanity. And, if we're honest, we should all recognize that we will have many opportunities in the future, as long as we are living, to give in to that capacity for inhumanity. And there is a part of us that will always feel that tug towards that selfishness and all the ways that it expresses itself. And so we should all be able to pray along with the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. 
I need your Holy Spirit to help tame this beast of sin that lives within me. The first step to being okay is recognizing that we're not okay. But you know, without humility, we don't ever get to that first step. As we fail to recognize our own sin, what happens? We only see the sin of others. Sin is not a problem in here. Sin is a problem out there. And as we think that way, our pride grows. And as our pride grows, our ability to empathize dies. And as our ability to empathize dies, our ability to love fades. And then the sin in our hearts reigns unchecked. I'm not a problem. You're a problem. But I recognize admitting our own sinfulness, admitting that we're not okay, that's not easy for a lot of us. Some of us, our whole sense of value is rooted in a sense of superiority. I'm better. I need to believe that I'm better than average in every respect. And letting go of that, or at least admitting that it doesn't matter before a holy God, that's hard to do. I remember back when I was in campus ministry, I uh, had a lot of conversations with an agnostic friend about faith. And uh, during one of those conversations, one of the last ones that we had, he said, I just want to know, what do you believe that your God requires of me? Like, what, do, what does he want me to do? What do I need to do? What's essential? And I said, you know, honestly, I think that what he really wants is just for you to acknowledge that you need him. That you need his forgiveness, that you need his help. That's really, that's really it. And I had hoped that my friend would say something like, that's it? That's amazing. That's awesome. I'll become a Christian right now, if that's all that's required. But you know what he said? He said, I don't think I could ever do that. I'm too proud. He said, that's the one thing I could never do. Now, over the course of our conversations, that friend had told me that he had gone from hating Christianity to actually having a lot of respect for it. He said, I used to just feel this disdain for it, but now that I've learned more, I see the beauty in it. But that call to humility, that was just a bridge too far. And, you know, I was disappointed by his choice. I hope someday he changes his mind. But I appreciate his honesty. You know, a lot of people wouldn't want to reject the faith by admitting that. I'm too proud. Right? But he just, he just said it. I think that's the one thing I can't do. If we want to be justified before God, we don't have to be perfect. Thank God for that. We don't even have to be close to perfect. But we have to be willing to admit that we are sinners in need of God's mercy. And for many of us, our pride recoils that, at that idea. Oh, it cries out, no, I'm not the one that needs help. It's, it's them. They're the problem. I'm fine. 
But you know what? Pride is the thief of joy. We cling to pride because we think it's going to make us happy, but it doesn't. Pride robs us of our joy because it keeps us from experiencing the good news, which is that Christ died for us even though we were sinners, that God loves us even though we don't deserve it. You know, those, those statements are not going to have any power to bring us joy if we just think, well, I deserved that, <laughs> right? If we don't think that we are part of the problem. But if we can let go of our pride, if we can recognize our own struggle with inhumanity, that the problem is not just out there, but it's also in here, then we can feel the joy of our salvation. That though we were sinners, Christ died for us. That each one of us needs the mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn humility. It's so important. We recognize how important it is. We also recognize how hard it is. Lord, I think of how much uh, animosity and hatred and cruelty there is in the world. And, and so much of it comes from that, that attitude of, of the heart that says, I am superior and those other people are wrong and evil and bad and worse than I am. Father, help us to be able to see our common humanity. That we have all gone astray. That we are all in need of your mercy. And that you and your goodness have shown us mercy. Lord, may we receive that and be transformed by it into humble people who humbly love and welcome others into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.